This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. This week sees the countdown to the Academy Awards come to some sort of conclusion as Hollywood chooses how it plans to present itself on Sunday. Will these Oscars be earnest or commercial? Will they be inclusive and woke or firmly on the wrong side of history? And most important, will the TV audiences come back or stay away? If a movie wins all the awards but nobody's there to see it, does it still count? It certainly didn't last year when all anyone could remember was a rather unconvincing slap on the face. (laughs) Oh, wow! Wow! Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Well, this year I can't say I've been any more overwhelmed by most of the nominees. The ten Best Picture finalists are mostly divided between flashy and shallow and earnestly self-important. I'm not expecting a Casablanca, a Lawrence of Arabia or The Godfather, but something as focused as Twelve Years a Slave, The King's Speech, even the much maligned Argo would have been nice. Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. Well, this year I'm not even going to try and second-guess the Academy's picks. Instead, let's tip our hat to efforts above and beyond the call of duty, starting with the most visible and often most easily blamed contributors, actors. Don't worry, this is going to be easy. For you, maybe. Not for me. I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star! As most winners of Best Actor Awards will tell you, it's one of the easiest Oscars to score. Nine times out of ten, they had the best director, the best script, the best costume and makeup, so why wouldn't they win? But what about those heroic toilers in less helpful roles? This year, let's give credit to them. You know who we remember for how nice they was in the 17th century? Who? Absolutely no one. Here we all remember the music of the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. I don't, so there goes that theory. Best actor goes immediately to the great Colin Farrell. Despite all the raves being bestowed on the banshees of Inner Sharon, this rather gruesome allegory about recent Irish politics is only rendered palatable by Colin's charming performance. He's always good, but this time he really had to roll his sleeves up. And best actress I was going to give to Kate Blanchett for the same reason. Time is the thing. Timing is the essential piece of interpretation. You cannot start without me. I start the clock. 
Anyone can win over an audience by being likeable, but in Tar, Kate pulls off her regular trick to make someone unlikable absolutely riveting. She's pulled it off in Carol, The Aviator and Blue Jasmine, so let's give her a rest this year. Give it to the lovely Michelle Yeoh, who helped make that pig's breakfast, everything, everywhere, all at once, vaguely tolerable. Once again, best performance in ludicrous script. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. Wow, that's really good. And this year, the Best Supporting Acting Awards go to nobody. I would have given Best Actor to Val Kilmer in Top Gun Maverick, a truly unselfish farewell performance after a lifetime of selfish ones. And Best Actress should have gone to 12-year-old Catherine Clinch in Irish Tearjerker, The Quiet Girl. But since none of my picks even made it to the long list, to hell with them. My mother wanted not that I in war. Ich wollte Ihnen zeigen, dass ich das kann. Ach, Paul. Ja, meine Hose kommen. Would I give Best Foreign Film to Germany's All Quiet on the Western Front? It was all right, I suppose, but my heart had already gone to the quiet girl on a budget that would have struggled to cover the coffee bill for All Quiet. And would I join seemingly everyone else in awarding Best Animated Film to Guillermo del Toro's reimagined Pinocchio? Papa! Enough of this nonsense. Hey, where are you going? You tell him I love him. And I won't be a burden anymore. Of course I wouldn't. I'm already on record with my dislike of this Pinocchio, ugly and unnecessary if you're asking. I was torn between a sweet little art film called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and the ridiculously entertaining Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which wiped the floor with rivals Disney and Pixar last year. Well, I'm supposed to be a fearless hero, a legend. This is a person party. That's your party. So this is where dignity goes to die. Well, I'm going with Puss in Boots. There have been quite enough pretentious, arty Oscar winners recently. Let's have a real movie for a change. As for technical awards, let's go obvious there too, I think. Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time, I will shove a knife right into you. I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. <laughs> The Whale's Fat Suit for Best Makeup, The Frocks in Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and of course, visual and sound effects to Avatar, since they provided pretty much the entire content of that interminable epic. The way of water connects all things. Before your birth, and after your death. The editing award surely goes to the film with the most obvious editing, the aptly named Everything Everywhere All at Once, while the design one goes to the master of overdoing the design, the none more Baz Luhrmann Elvis. There's a lot of talk about the new Elvis. Most people ain't gonna change me none! 
Best original script should go to Tar, an intelligent examination of power politics and cancel culture, rather than the overpraised banshees and over-the-top everything everywhere. And best adapted screenplay should go to Sarah Polly's thoughtful women talking, rather than the plodding all quiet on the Western Front. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant, and some of us are dead. We cannot forgive because we are forced to. But frankly, none of the ten script finalists were a patch on what TV's been coming up with recently. Happy Valley or The White Lotus. Just saying. Well, finally, who do I like for actual best film this year? You dismiss what he does. It's playful or imaginative. You could afford to be a little encouraging. She should have been the concert piano player. What she got in her heart is what you got. We're not exactly spoilt for choice. As I said at the start, the nominees are firmly divided between the self-indulgent, like Steven Spielberg's Underwhelming the Fablemans, and the flashy and shallow. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. Top of that list is Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick, of course, which in happier years wouldn't have even been nominated, but got in this time because at least it was an actual movie. Unlike video game comic book mashups like Avatar, Elvis, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. The reality is that it's not until I once again decide to raise that hand that time is allowed to continue marching along her very merry way. In the end, I think I have to plump for Tar, despite the irritating acute accent on the A. Smart, insightful, a couple of great characters, and of all the films in competition, it's the only one I'd actually like to see again sometime. But as often as I saw Some Like It Hot, Alien or Rear Window, don't be ridiculous. I can smell trouble right here in this apartment. First you smash your leg, then you get to looking out the window... See things you shouldn't see? Trouble. This week, three more films that, to me, fell a little short. The umpteenth Rocky spin-off Creed Three, with no Rocky for some reason. Sam Mendes' slightly formless collection of cinema memories, Empire of Light. And first, this year's tenth and final Oscar nominee arrives in cinemas, Triangle of Sadness. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. There's been a recent run on satirical films attacking the so-called 1%. These are the ultra-rich, the ultra-privileged and pretentious. All you'd think pretty easy targets. Last year's The Menu, for instance, sneered at ridiculously expensive and exclusive restaurants, while 2017's The Square dared to suggest that, in the high-end art world, the emperor may be a little underdressed. Goodness. Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M! Yay! Balenciaga! And H&M! Balenciaga! And H&M! The Square was the work of Swedish director Ruben Erstland, and it may not surprise you to learn he picked up the Palm Door at Cannes that year for it. Or that he did it again last year with a film called Triangle of Sadness. This one tackles wealth and privilege head-on. Again. You said you were going to pay for food today. 
At the end of the meal, you said, thanks, tomorrow I'll get, I'll get it. Sure, but then you picked up the bill and I thought you wanted to pay, so I said, thank you, honey. Triangle of Sadness isn't so much a three-act film as three separate films with many of the same characters. The first act is essentially an argument between two supermodels called Carl and Yaya. They're rich because they're good-looking. This bit is mostly them arguing over the dinner bill. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Act two takes Carl and Yaya onto a super yacht. They got free tickets because Yaya is a famous influencer. The other idol rich on board include Russian oligarchs, tech billionaires and a lovable old English arms dealer and his wife named Winston and Clementine. Get it? So what business do you have together? Uh, Basically, our best-selling product is the hand grenade. Sorry, the what? The hand grenade, dear. Also in Act Two, and in fact the only two good things on the yacht or in the movie, are the captain, amusingly a deeply committed communist, well, I say amusingly, and Abigail, who's in charge of the toilets. The captain is played by that perennial good sport, Woody Harrelson. The saints. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. Abigail is played by Filipino star Dolly DeLeon, and unlike Woody, will come into her own in the third act. This follows an unnecessarily gross banquet scene, the phrase mal de mer tells you all you need to know, in which a small selection of guests and crew, including Carl and Yaya, are cast adrift on a desert island. Who will survive? The ship is going under. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just Triangle of Sadness not only won big at last year's Cannes Film Festival, it's up for no fewer than three Oscars this year, including Best Film. So you'd expect a little more to it than this. <laughs> A Russian capitalist and an American <laughs> communist. On a $250 million luxury yacht. The film only really picks up steam in the last act, where the overprivileged have no idea how to survive. Not a Boy Scout or Girl Guide among them, it seems, apart from one. Yes, step up, Abigail, the toilet manager. Is that an actual thing? To prove that the least likely member of the team can also be the most valuable player. We have to work together, create a good group, good society. Now, theatrical historians among you may be raising your hands at this stage and saying, this sounds suspiciously like that antique stage play, The Admirable Crichton, which of course it does. J.M. Barry's cautionary tale of the rich and useless being saved by their butler on a similar desert island. I caught the fish. Yes. I made the fire. And? I cooked. I did all the work. And everybody got something. Mm. 
And I'm not sure a triangle of sadness adds much more to this, or indeed adds up to anything much. I'm sure everyone on this film felt they were doing God's work, satirising the social attitudes of the undeserving rich. But it's unlikely the 1% will sustain more than a couple of glancing blows by the end of it. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. Rockies have there been since Sylvester Stallone first put pen to paper and fist to glove back in 1976. I thought about four, but I wasn't even close. Aside from his own six films, there are the reboots centred on the son of his friend and rival, Apollo Creed. I spent the last seven years of my life living out my wildest dreams. Bianca. Rocky. My dad. Now, Adonis Creed, call me Donny, makes it to Creed 3, though this time with no Rocky at all, and star Michael B. Jordan stepping into the director's chair. I know it sounds almost like a Rocky story itself, doesn't it? Hey, my man, can I help you? Let me get an autograph. No, nah, I ain't signing an autograph, but you get off my car. You don't remember me, huh? Damn it. But the man to watch is the film's antagonist, Danny's childhood buddy Damien, played by the star most likely in 2023, Jonathan Majors. Majors was the evil Kang the Conqueror in the last Ant-Man movie, and we're told he's to be the supervillain in the next few Avengers films. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I kept myself in shape. I got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. But that's for later. Right now, Damien is fresh out of prison after 18 years and calling in an as-yet unspecified debt from Adonis Creed. Oh, I forgot to mention, Donny is currently top of the world, undefeated world boxing champion, worthy successor to the legendary, if currently absent, Rocky Balboa, and happy family man to wife Bianca and daughter Amara. Curious what happened with you two? I didn't tell you. We was like brothers. I was the best, though. Man, I never got a chance to prove that. But when you're on top, there's only one way to go. Damien is out of jail, but he's been seething with jealousy. He wants what Donnie's got and plans to get to the top as quickly as possible. Hey, hey, what you doing, man? I know what you're doing, Donnie. You don't owe this to nothing. Damien's fighting the world. He's trying to hurt people. The only thing is, Donnie's essentially retired, but he's managing a new kid, Felix. Out of the goodness of his heart, he hires his old buddy because of that debt we were talking about before. But on being given an inch, Damien takes a mile. He fights dirty, and next thing you know, he's taken the boxing belt away from the worthy Felix. I vouch for you. You think you mad? Try spending half your life in a cell. Why does somebody else live your life? I'm coming for everything. You threatening me? A man has no choice, particularly a man whose name is in the title of the movie with a big three at the end of it, but to retrain up after three years away. It's time to show Damien the true meaning of boxing. The one and only Adonis Creed, you're the best pound for pound fighter in the world. Three years ago, it's been a minute since you've been out in these streets. When I walked away from boxing, 
I walked away with some unfinished business. Well, that's not quite all there is to Creed 3. There's a bit of backup work from Creed's old boxing buddy, Tony, who offers the sort of boxing tips we used to expect Rocky to contribute. There's Mrs. Creed Sr., Apollo's wife, who warns Donnie against the dodgy Damien. One day you came back. The past came back, too. There may have been a time when Damien had your back. No friends in the industry. But that's not what he's doing now. And there's the current Mrs. Creed, Bianca, played by the always likeable Tessa Thompson, who also warns Donnie against Damien. But she has more practical advice. Get into that ring with him, she suggests. Or there isn't any movie, of course. Something is going on with you. Damien was like family. Now we pass talking. Then maybe you just have to find out. As always in a Rocky Creed movie, there are two fights. One with an unsatisfactory end, the other with a satisfactory one. And to get from one to the other, as always, we're going to need a montage. More hip-hop based than the traditional Rocky theme, maybe, but still the same old air punching at the end. I know that they needed me. Somatic stress, watch it manifest. Got my only fear, I ain't scared of death. Did you hear me yet? I ain't scared of death. Did you hear me yet? All pretty much what it says on the label. The only two questions remaining are whether Michael B. Jordan will continue his directing career after this, it looked pretty serviceable to me, and whether Jonathan Majors will become the new Denzel Washington. I suspect that one may be mostly in the hands of the people in charge of Marvel Comics movies. You out there boxing. I need you to start fighting. At the start of the year, Empire of Light received quite a bit of publicity, directed by the very reputable Sir Sam Mendes of Skyfall and 1917 fame, and starring the apparently infallible Olivia Colman and Colin Firth, it was both a love letter to 80s cinema and a reminder of 80s racist violence, with a few jokes and a bit of sex. No-one's going to give you the life you want. But you've got a problem, you know that? go out and get it. But then it all went a bit quiet. It was nominated for some awards, notably Roger Deakins' cinematography, but not as many as you'd expect. The fact is, Empire of Light's title lets it down a bit. It's never quite as triumphant or ultimately feel-good as the name implies. How do you feel, generally? a bit numb, I suppose. Set in coastal Margate, the film mostly takes place in a slightly run-down cinema, The Empire. The manager is an unusually seedy Colin Firth, the projectionist is predictably Toby Jones, and the ticket and popcorn seller is Hillary, a rather muted Olivia Colman. And you do have people you can talk to, friends... Will you pop into the office for a quick drink? Stop. Why? Who's this hurting? Well, your wife, for one. Hillary has clearly had mental health issues, though she assures her doctor she's fine now. She has friends, well, 
colleagues. And, of course, creepy boss Colin is always keen to see her in private, so to speak. Morning, all. Stephen here will be replacing Trevor. Hello. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. One day, new boy Stephen is hired, young, black and personable. And against all odds, he and Hillary strike up a friendship. Film fan Stephen is shocked to discover that Hillary is usually too busy to see any of the movies she sells tickets for. But she does love to show off the faded glories of the Empire itself. It really was beautiful. It still is. happen a lot. Oh yeah, it's everywhere isn't it? And Hillary is shocked in turn at the casual racism Stephen has to put up with in Thatcher's Margate. Skinhead violence has flared up again, ironically at the same time as multiracial ska bands like the specials. You can't just give up. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. Empire of Light certainly looks several million bucks, particularly the red plush cinema interior. And stars Olivia Colman and newcomer Michael Ward are fine. It's just that the film is a little directionless. It's neither slow enough to be serious kitchen sink, nor quick enough to be a lively feel-good movie. I'm the only one who knows the truth, do you understand me? I'm the only one! The storyline, a rare outing by Sam Mendes as sole writer, seems at least semi-autobiographical, and the various elements hang together pleasantly rather than particularly dynamically. The theme, such as it is, seems to be that sometimes escaping into the world of movies is a good thing to do. Out there, I just see a beam of light. Nothing happens without light. Glancing at the posters festooning the empire of clearly Sam Mendes' favourite films of the time, from Raging Bull and Raiders of the Lost Ark to Gregory's Girl, it's hard to resist all that nostalgia, but also a nagging wish that this film were as good as those. A little beam of light is escape. Empire of Light is a quiet Sunday afternoon pleasure rather than the sort of blockbuster Saturday night premiere personified in this film by the mega-hit Chariots of Fire, but it's still often rather sweet. Here's to the future. Walking those old scenes. Here's to getting back up. And here's to coming home. Olivia Colman's astonishingly mobile and expressive face is utilised to its best in a scene where she sees a half-forgotten 80s classic, Peter Sellers' finest moment being there. Empire of Light may not deliver the Oscar punch that was possibly expected of it at the outset, but in a certain light, it elicits an unexpected twinkle. And as the curtain falls and the lights come up, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.